God bless you. You may be seated. Um, I'm going to, you know, again, ladies, if you're planning on going to the breakfast that's coming up this Sunday, we really need to know. Sunday? Saturday? Hey, not a bad idea, though, huh? But uh, we want to remind you, please let us know by signing up to the information center so that we can make sure that we can count on you because we've got to take a look at buying the food here to get things set up. So that, along with some other things coming up down the road, I'm sure you've got your... It's okay. I understand. Anyways, uh, there's things coming down the pike. Please make sure you get it. There's some extra bulletins out there. You can pick up. You can take several. Distribute them to your friends. I don't know. Whatever. But uh, uh, how, how many know that God has purpose and reason in all that he does? We don't understand it. We don't necessarily sometimes have a clue with it. But I love the way God does reveal himself to us in our journey along our way. We've been talking about covenants. And what we have seen, that, that covenant in the Bible times was literally a matter of life and death. When you talk about covenant, any covenant is a matter of life and death. And that was underscored throughout the ritual by death of a covenant animal. And the oath that was, as we've discussed, taken by the two parties and the shedding of their own blood, which, as you remember, flowed down their arms as they would swear to keep the covenant, even to the point of shedding their own blood. Now, for God to make the new covenants, the representative, the God-man Jesus, he had to shed his blood in death, and rising out of death, bring us the blessing of the new covenant in the authority of his shed blood. Now, that's a lot being said right there, but, but remember, we've talked about representative and who Christ is. Now, here's that first verse, Hebrews 13, 20. And you know, you might be able to click on scriptures there and, and follow along with me. Even though I'm, I'll be, I'll be speaking in the New King James language, but it says in Hebrews thirteen twenty. What? Uh, oh, good. Hey, how about that? It says, "Now may the God of peace, who brought up our Lord Jesus from the dead, that great Shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the noted everlasting covenant." This is huge. This is not temporary. It's not a nice idea that the great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the everlasting covenant. But what is, and I just want to touch base on this a little bit, what is the, the, this obsession with death that must involve the shedding of blood? Why the death of, of millions of animals by the shedding of their blood? Well, why did the love of God, you know, finally focus in the shedding of the blood of Jesus Christ? Uh, from the beginning to the end of the Bible, we have the shedding of blood in the Old Testament, a river of blood that flows from the animals that were slain daily as sacrifices in the tabernacle and in the temple. In the New Testament, the central celebration is in giving glory to the blood of Jesus 
that fulfilled all the Old Testament sacrifices. Revelations chapter 5 says this beginning in verse 9. It says, And they sang a new song, saying, You are worthy to take the scroll to open its seals, for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation and have made us kings and priests to our God and we shall reign on earth. Oh man, that's not futuristic, that's now. And notice what it says, make us kings and priests and we reign on the earth. So it is not only within the pages that we have in the Bible that we find the shedding of blood, but literally, if you take a look around the world, sacrificial shedding of blood takes place among people that are far removed from each other with, with all sorts of diverse kinds of or forms of religion. You have records, if you go back in history, of the ancient, uh, you know, the, in, Times and, and universally they contain the shedding of blood in, in sacrifice to the gods, both animal and human sacrifices. So I got to ask myself, you know, where did such an, uh, a, a universal idea come from in the first place? Because it, it is to be found among all the people throughout history, one would, had, one would have to believe if you're looking at it, that it arose in, in the babyhood of the human race and spread along with the spread of humankind across the world, across the earth. So, secular anthropologists, of, I wanted to say that word because it's a, such a big word, anthropologists, they, what they do is they tell us that it originated in the fear of the supernatural. The belief that an angry God demanded to be, you know, pleased with blood. But the Bible gives us a really different picture. Uh, in Leviticus chapter 17, and in actuality, it's 11 through 14 that you can read through this, but it's the key scripture to understanding what lies behind the shedding of blood. The blood contains the life of the creature. Right here it says in verse 11, for the life of the flesh is in the blood. We'll stop it right there. We'll pick up the rest of that verse a little bit later. But the life, the life of the flesh is in the blood. God, the creator and source of all life, owns all life and the blood in which it is contained. Therefore, Throughout the Bible, all blood, animals as well as humans, was regarded as sacred. It was never to be eaten, and when an animal was killed, its blood had to be reverently buried. Take a look at Leviticus 7, and I'm going to put you to work here, Wendy. I'm, I'm sorry, but throughout, I've got a lot of scripture, man. If he offers it for a thanksgiving, then he shall offer with the sacrifice of thanksgiving, unleavened cakes mixed with oil, unleavened wafers anointed with oil, or cakes of blended flour mixed with oil. Beside the cakes at his offering, he shall offer leavened bread with the sacrifice of thanksgiving of his peace offering. Now, understand, the first response to God, to the sin of man, 
was to give them the gift of an animal sacrifice in which the sacred lifeblood of an animal was shed in death, being poured out on behalf of the sinner under the penalty of death. That's where we were. The animal literally then took the place of the sinner. The man or woman's sins, you know, one's entire condition of separation from God was then placed upon the animal, and then as the sinner's substitute, its lifeblood was poured out in the earth. The life of the substitute animal was yielded up in death by the shedding of, the, of blood to the one against whom sin had been committed. So, so you've got the principle of substitutionary sacrifice that was not revealed in detail to the human race until it was spelled out in minute detail in the law of Moses. Take a look at it. It's in Leviticus 17 and verse 11. It says, For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you upon the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that makes atonement for the soul. Now, although this is, is a thousand years after the first couple, Adam and Eve, fell, the, the principle was true in the eyes of God back there in the beginning of time. But, you know, here, here it is. How, how, how could the blood of an animal have any effect on you? Uh, you know, I've, I've thought about sacrificing my dog, but what good would that do, you know? But there was absolutely no virtue in the blood of animals to cover the sin of mankind. No virtue whatsoever. So when then do we look for the effectiveness, if you would, then of, an a of animal blood through the centuries before Jesus comes? To fully understand the sacrifices, you've got to look backward into the, uh, I call it the, the secret purpose of, or the purposes of the Trinity. We, we've already seen, we've talked about the seed that before time and space were created, the triune God determined in covenant love to create us, humankind, to enter and in, 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 to eternally share his life. That, that was decided even though God knew that man would, would, would just sin and, and wreak havoc on creation, and that was decided even though God knew that the Father would send the Son who would join humanity in their sinful condition, taking then the place and bearing their sin in his body, pouring out his lifeblood, if you will, for them as them. Before, before time and space were created, the ultimate gift of the sacrifice of the Son had already been given in the heart and determined by God. First Peter says this in chapter 1, and it starts with verse 19. But the precious blood of Christ, the precious blood of the life blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot, he indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you. Let me go to Revelations 13, 
Take a look at verse 8. For it, it says that the, uh, the book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Uh, this, this, is, this is what all who dwell on the earth will worship him whose name has not been written in the book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. The ultimate gift of sacrifice of God the Son, who already had been given before time, was pictured, was anticipated in the gift of the blood of animals in sacrifice. Now, apart from the determination in the heart of God to give his Son, animal sacrifices meant less than zero. The blood of animals could not take away sin. And God was affronted by sacrifices that were presented merely, if, if you remember in Scripture from Isaiah, as a religious ritual. As a matter of fact, Isaiah 1, he, he just puts it out there in verse 11. It says, to what purpose is the multitude of your sacrifices to me? Says the Lord, I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed cattle. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or goats. Huh. Boom. In itself, the pouring out of animal blood could literally contribute nothing to bring a person to God. The animal sacrifice had significance and meaning only because what they did is they shadowed in time and space the sacrifice already accomplished in the heart of God from before creation. And what it's doing is awaiting its accomplishment in, in, in our history, in earth's history. The benefit of the blood of Jesus was present to the worshipers in the Old Covenant, in the Old Testament, by, well, basically virtue of the fact that he was slain in the heart of God from the beginning of time and was shadowed then in animal sacrifice. So, so every animal sacrifice actually prepared the people for the actualization in time, space, and history of the secret determination of God to become the substitute for his creature human. I want you to hear what I just said. The secret determination of God, of God to become the substitute for his creature human. Grab that. The Bible is the only book that gives the account of when God gave the original blood sacrifice to sinful humans. You remember when man and women, man and women, man and woman, <laughs> you can get in trouble with some of this. But when they fell from that, that, that position they had, that lofty reigning position by their disobedience and, and set the course of the race according to the satanic lie, they came under the penalty of death. Now, in love, God came to the couple and initiated the unfolding of his gift of salvation, which would come to its full expression, as we know, on the cross and in the resurrection of Jesus. At that time, what he did was he gave a promise of salvation, announcing that there would be a seed or a descendant 
who would crush the head of the serpent, Satan. At the same time, there is the record of what appears to be a strange, I call it strange, act of God. He, he comes to them and he replaces the tunic of fig leaves the guilty couple had made in order to cover their shame and gave them instead coats of an animal. Take a look at it in Genesis 3, in verse 21, it says, Also, for Adam and his wife, the Lord God made tunics of skin and clothed them. All right. It is obvious that for them to wear clothes of the skin of animals, an animal had to what? Die. Now, there are some commentators that see this as an act of God's generosity in providing them with adequate clothing. Well, the context points to something far more significant. If it was only a matter of clothes, what was in the world wrong with what I would call the fiber of clothes, you know, made of fig leaves that they already had? Well, what's the problem with that? Does God prefer fur coats, you know? Obviously, something of far greater importance is taking place here. And, and, and again, what God was doing in, in the fact that the skin coats were given to replace the fig leaves that the couple had made to cover their, their shame that you know, came on them because of their disobedience, the fig leaves were directly connected, grab this, the fig leaves were directly connected to sin and their attempt to hide its result in lies. I, I want you to get this. It's not just a matter of fig leaves. Fig, hmm, where did the fig leaves come from? Trees. Where are the trees? In the ground. They're of the earth in that sense. They are, hmm, I'll get into it in a second. But by giving them another covering, the Lord was saying that the fig leaves were inadequate to deal with the situation that they found themselves in. Sin had left them in the state of death. And, 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 and you're dealing with the guilt and the shame that, 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 that were both the immediate sensations that come over them. Something more drastic was needed that would deal with that death. So the fig leaf fiber temporarily covered the shame that they experienced in each other's presence. It, it, it made them respectable, okay? But it did not, and it could not deal with the guilt or the cause of it. So they were in this state of death, and it was that condition that needed to be dealt with. So God gave them a vivid picture that prefigured what the woman's seed who was yet to come would accomplish. The first gift of God outside the gift of life itself was his gift to the first man and woman of a sacrificial animal that would shed its blood in death and give to them its skin to provide them coats to cover their nakedness. It must have been, in my eyes, if I can just put myself there, this, this unforgettable moment of, of actual horror in, in the life of the first couple. Because remember, they've been naming all these animals. They had been spending time with them. There was a whole different, I mean, you, you, mm, they had never seen 
death before, let alone the death accompanied by the shedding of blood. And to know that the Creator was doing this in order that their guilt and their shame might be covered, it would leave an indelible mark on them. They, they could never forget that God rejected their own rather creative idea covering of fig leaves and, 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 and their, their venture into the needlework as, a, as an inadequate covering. He demanded the shedding of blood to cover the result of their sin. And he acted as the priest on behalf of the sinful couple. And, and he, he made the first sacrifice to himself from among the human race. Humankind would never forget that when approaching God then, they had to come as those under the penalty of death, bringing with them the gift of substitute, a substitute animal which God had provided. Even when the nations had become you know, lost in the spiritual darkness and, and had replaced the true God with idols of, of, of every kind, still they knew by vague memory that was imprinted in the race that they had to have the shedding of blood in connection with the spiritual world. Its meaning was, of course, distorted and definitely used by demons. Sometimes it took the most even degraded form of human sacrifice, but the shedding of blood was always there, and it still is to this day, <coughs> excuse me, in many places. And so for me, this really explains the story of Cain and Abel that's found in, in Genesis 4. And the story takes place some years after Adam and Eve were expelled from Eden. The first two sons had become farmers. Cain grew vegetables and Abel raised sheep. It would appear that there was a specific time when individuals would come to worship God bringing with them their offerings. Now, the phrase in the Genesis account, in the process of time, literally reads, at the end of days, suggesting there for us that it's a specific time that came after so many days that had passed. It also tells us that they brought their offering to the Lord, which suggests a specific place, and I suggest probably the gates of the Garden of Eden. The, the, that is where the presence of God was dwelling, just like the Holy of Holies would be. So Genesis 4.4 tells us this, Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fats. Now, remember, his offering was accepted. Why? Hebrews 11.4 tells us that it was because of his faith. It says, by faith, Abel offered to God a more, a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained witness that he was righteous, God testifying of his gifts, and through it, he being dead still speaks. Still being dead. Did I, did I do that right? Yeah, through it. Yeah. Biblical faith never initiates an action. Let me say that again. Biblical faith never initiates an action. It is a responsive act of trust in a word from God. What Abel, what was Abel responding to? 
To me, that's a big question. He was responding to what he had been taught by his father. Adam, his father, concerning the gift of sacrifice that God had given to them in the garden. He was coming with the blood of a lamb, which would suggest that the animal was the animal that God had slain. To me, it's ridiculous to even think that Abel happened on, you know, just the right sacrifice by chance and the acceptance and witness that God gave him that he was righteous was just a, a whim on God's part. Something was working out here that all parties knew about. Now, Cain, on the other hand, chose to be innovative, to reject the plan, the plain word and the gift. It says in, in Genesis 4 here, verse 3, in the process of time, it came to pass that Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground to the Lord. Now, not only was Cain deliberately refusing God's gift of the appointed way to cover sin and be accepted by him, but he was going back to that which God had already plainly rejected in, in the fig leaves of, of Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve had covered their guilt and shame with the fruit of the ground in the fig leaves. And God refused it as an inadequate covering. Abel brought the lamb appointed by God that its life may be poured out for Abel's sin. And Cain brought the vegetables and the fruit that he had grown with his own hands and the sweat of his labor. He was bringing the best he could. Cain brought the harvest as if to give to the creator for his provision. And, and he appeared to deliberately ignore the fact that there was more at stake here than saying a thank you to the creator and provider. What you have is sin has to be faced and dealt with, and the result of sin cannot be covered by a harvest of the best human hands can produce. Along with the rest of the race, Cain stood under the sentence of death, and the only way out was for another to take his place, a life offered up and blood poured out on his behalf. Now, I'm, I'm going to be real honest with you. You can't feel sorry for Cain, for he knew what God demanded. Take a look at Genesis 4 and verse 7. It says, if you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin lies at the door. God gently reminded Cain that he knew what he had to do to be accepted. And if he didn't do what he knew to do, then sin like a wild animal, was crouching already to, to take him. Now, the New Testament makes a strong statement about his offering. First John, First John chapter 3, it says, Not as Cain, who was of the wicked one, and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his works were evil and his brother's righteous. The works that the verse talks about, are the fruits he brought as an offering. And they are designated evil works. Cain was not misguided, but the first to go further than the sin of his parents in actuality, for what he does is he rejects God's gift of salvation and substituted what he deemed to be better. It's one thing to sin, 
the greater evil is to refuse the God-appointed way of salvation. His, his, his evil was the evil of, of man-made religion that seeks the way of salvation by the sweat of our brow and by the works of our hands by which we would presume then to please God because of what we've done. And such, at that point, really must then reject the divinely revealed and, and really only way, which is through the sacrificial blood of Jesus, the Lamb of God being poured out. The, these stories from the dawn of man's history are the seeds from which we have the full understanding of the meaning of sacrifice that would fully come. The law of Moses developed these first offerings into a sacrificial system that gave us a really much clearer picture of him who was to come. Every day, every day, bloody sacrifices were made in the tabernacle and then later the temple to cover the sins of the people. Each sacrifice looked forward with hope to the day when God would deal with sin in a final, all-sufficient way. So the hope and straining forward a final offering that would take away sin and bring man and bring woman out of their state of death was brought into focus on one solemn day each year, and they called it the Day of Atonement. At the center of the way of ritual and, and, and sacrifices that made up the old covenant was the high priest. He was the representative. He was the mediator of the covenant on behalf of the people of Israel. When wearing his full ritual dress, he symbolically, if you remember, carried each tribe of Israel on his breastplates and on his shoulders by means of these precious stones with the names of each tribe that was engraved in them. So it was a vivid picture that declared to every Israelite that he or she was in the high priest. Now, he carried on his shoulder in his... And uh, let, me, let me just... Mm -hmm. And basically what you have is wherever the high priest went, Israel went. And so this all comes to focus on the Day of Atonement. And on this day, all the offerings that had been offered every day throughout the last year were to be summed up into one offering. And a goat which was sacrificed by the high priest on behalf of all the people. Now it pointed forward, is what it did, to the coming day when one offering would then end all offerings. For what he would do is he would encompass the sin of the world and fulfill hopes of all offerings that had been offered. He would deal with sin once and forever. On that day, the high priest would lay aside his symbolic, richly embroidered garments, and he came to the people dressed in simple white, oh, simple white robe of a priest. Two goats that had been examined and found physically without any blemish, and one of them would be chosen for death. The high priest, standing on behalf of the people as the representative, would lay his hands on the head of the goat and confess the sins of the people, symbolically transferring the condition of the people 
to the animal that would stand in their place. Now, if you were in the crowd on that day, as you heard the sins being confessed, what you would recognize was that was your sins that were being laid on a substitute animal. It would not be just an empty ritual, but God's gift to you to bear away your sin. You would watch as, as, a, as the priest would take out his knife and with a quick flash and a very humane way, cut the jugular vein of the goat that was cut that, as the animal is slain and its blood then would be caught in a basin. The sacrificed goat died as the substitute for the people and its lifeblood as a result was poured out. The high priest then would carry the blood into the sacred precincts of the temple to its, its holy center, as we know it, that it was a room where no one, no person ventured except the high priest, and he only on this day. The room was separated from the rest of the temple by a big veil. The sacred room was the place within the temple where the glory of God was visible, made manifest. It was a symbol of heaven the dwelling place of God. Now, what it does is it takes us back to Eden, which was the first dwelling of God in his creation. I mean, sin cast the man and the woman out of Eden. And the way being barred then out of the entrance of the fire was, was the fire of the swords of the angels of the cherubim, basically. And the veil, if you remember correctly, cordoned off the Holy of Holies was embroidered by figures of cherubim that were reminiscent of the guardians of, of Eden. So humans could not enter the glorious presence, not because God didn't love them, but because of their sin and, and, and placed them in a relationship to God that would cause their destruction if they did. Inside the room, the Holy of Holies you have the Ark of the Covenant that, that is a box that's overlaid with gold and, and covered by a lid of solid gold called the mercy seat with cherubim fashioned from gold at each end. And between the cherubim and above the mercy seat, uncreated light of the glory of God, the presence of God of covenant was, was, was visible. The high priest took the blood of the goat and sprinkled it on the mercy seat. The, the slab of gold was already encrusted with the blood that had been sprinkled there each year over generations. The blood was very symbolic. It was, the, it was, symbol, it was a symbolic registry before God that one more time, one more time, the sin of the people had been covered. Now, the blood that stained the mercy seat was literally the promise of the blood of the final offering, again, that would one day not merely cover sin, but take it away forever. Every sprinkling of blood on that golden slab was a promise and an IOU given by God to God that awaited payment by the blood of Jesus. Now, the sacrifice on the Day of Atonement was really unlike any other sacrifice that, that, take, that took place throughout the year. And there was a second part to it. At this time, the living goat that had not been chosen 
for sacrifice was taken. And again, the high priest laid his hands on it, and the sins of the people were confessed over it, and then it was taken into the wilderness. It was referred to, by the way, as a scapegoat. It was taken out and led into the wilderness and sent away, never to return. The sending away of the second goat is is in full view of all the people, and it declared also in vivid imagery what had happened to their sin when the blood had been sprinkled out of sight behind the veil. Their sin was covered and lost from the eyes of God, and they could go to their homes as a result rejoicing. However, as dramatically as the ritual on the Day of Atonement gave them the assurance that their sin had been covered, it did not deal with sin, but in fact only brought it to remembrance. Now, although the animal taking place, taking the place of, of sinful you know, men and women was the gift of God given to cover sin, the system had a lot of weaknesses. To begin with, the blood of an animal carrying animal life could never be the substitute for human. And, 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 and it couldn't be, I should say, the substitute for human blood carrying the life of the one made in the image of God. The animal victims <laughs> were not willing substitutes. Hello? Now the sheep didn't go, oh, I'll take your place. Uh, they, they had been chosen and volunteered for sacrifice without, you know, their willing participation. And nor were they obeying God and being led to the altar of sacrifice. They were non-rational creatures who made no decision to die and therefore offered themselves neither to God nor to man. So, you know, you you can't take the place of the one man or the one who's made in God's image who had chosen willfully to disobey the command of God. The, The blood of animals never dealt with sin or took it away, but covered it until the sacrifice to which that pointed was made that would take away sin. The continual sacrifices were a promise of the future day when the blood of infinite value would be shed by one who had fully obeyed God in life and in infinite love, freely chosen as a result to offer himself in death, shedding his blood on behalf of humankind. Such a a sacrifice then was the goal to which all animal sacrifices actually pointed. The shedding of his blood would bring an end to sacrifices. The need for sacrifices would then be eliminated. And and for this offering would would, would actually finally deal with sin and, and, and resurrect sinners out of their state of death. Reconciliation would be celebrated and enjoyed rather than continually you know, reaching for the continual sacrifices of substitute animals. And so for this reason, the sacrifices of the Day of Atonement were never finished. They couldn't be finished until the one they pointed to came and accomplished his work. There was, if you remember correctly, there's no chair 
in the Holy of Holies. I mean, the high priest never sat down after he sprinkled the blood on the mercy seat. He did not sit down because sin had not been put away. It had only been covered. And, 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 and you know, the Day of Atonement finished with his work still unfinished. Along with, you got the people, he would be back the next year to sprinkle the blood again in hope of the final offering. Hebrews chapter 10. And verse 1 says, For the law, having a shadow of the good things to come, and not the very image of the things, can never with these same sacrifices, which they offer continually year by year, make those who approach perfect. For, when, for then would they not have ceased to be offered. For the worshipers once purified, would have had no more consciousness of sin. But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats should take away sins. And in verse 11, it says, And every priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sin. Now imagine the, the, the shock and, and, and the thrill that would go through the hearts of those who first heard the prophets announce what the new covenant would accomplish. Look at Jeremiah 31, 33. He says, but this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. No more shall each man teach his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall know me from the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin. Think about that. No more. I will remember. Ezekiel 36, he speaks of this, beginning with verse 25. He says, from God, God's word says, Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will keep my judgments and do them. I love what Daniel speaks of that day that would, in, in, in Daniel chapter 9, sorry, Wendy. In Daniel 9, beginning with verse 26, it says, And after the 62 weeks, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end of it shall be with a flood. Until the end of the war, desolations are determined. Then shall confirm a covenant with many for one week. But in the middle of the week, he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abomination shall be one who makes desolate, even until the consummation which is determined is poured out on the desolate. Wow, that's a lot of, huh? Well, <laughs> what God is saying here is, is, is God the Son 
God the Son, God, God would take to himself our humanity and live out our human life. Think about this. God would take on our humanity and live out our human life. He would suffer and die as us and shed the blood of God. Shed the blood of God. <laughs> Only then could sin be remembered no more. A, a, a blood had to be shed that transcended human blood as the creator transcends the creature. Jesus, the God-man, he's appointed as the high priest of the new covenant. He laid aside the glory that belonged to him as the son of God and came among us as a, again, carpenter in Nazareth. He was both high priest and the sacrifice. On the cross, he as priest offered himself as the final sacrifice that all sacrifices since the first blood that was shed in Eden had pointed to. I mean, is it not a wonder that in Eden, the man and woman actually desired the death of God so they might take his place? But in pursuing that desire, they died. God responds to their rebellion with infinite love. And he placed himself into the hands of the creature human and died with the result that human is made alive, is forgiven, and reconciled. The blood of Christ, the blood of Jesus, the blood of God began to be shed in Gethsemane when he anticipated the horrors that awaited him. You have great sweat drops of blood that, that came through the pores of his skin. And, and when guards came to arrest him, his, his tunic was already stained with, with, with the blood of the covenant. It continued to be shed in the vicious torture that was inflicted on him, on his body. The scourging, scourging, of the, of, of the thorns being jammed into his wood. It was completed on the cross when you had the nails that are pounded through his hands and his feet. And finally, you had the spear that thrust into his side that released not only a flow of blood, but of water. God the Son, in our humanity, as us, was making covenant with God Father, <laughs> the life is in the blood. The life is in the blood. And in this case, the blood was shed. The blood that was shed. The blood that was shed was the physical blood of God that flowed through the veins of the God-man Jesus. It was both the blood shed from his humanity the blood of our race, and also it was the blood of God as he swore by himself to the terms of the covenant that he had determined to bring to pass, which I read to you in Jeremiah. The blood of God. I, I want you to let that 
sink in. It wasn't just Jesus Christ, the man. It was the blood of God. And when he cried, it is finished, it was not out of a gasp of some man who was defeated and who was exhausted and just finally gave. No, it was the triumph cry of the man who had finished, who had accomplished what he had came, what he had came to do. What began before time in the heart of God's love was accomplished in his ravaged body, shed blood, open wounds on the hill that stood outside of Jerusalem. Look, the shedding of the blood of God in covenants brought the representative out of death and brought us with him. Hebrews 13, verse 20. I love this verse. Now may the God of peace who brought up our Lord Jesus from the dead, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant. There it is again. In rising from the dead, he became the declaration that sin, that the, the sin that had carried him into death had been dealt with forever, and the death the sin had brought had been swallowed up. He literally was the announcement that now the terms of the covenant could be fulfilled in us. Every covenant is sealed or ratified by blood. And the new covenant being sealed in the blood of the Lord Jesus, is no, is, it's no exception. The old gospel hymn, okay, it assures us that there is what? Power in the blood. And although I'm not going to, you know, on some crusade to, to change that, it, it actually isn't true that there's power in the blood. The power of the new covenant is in the Holy Spirit, the authority of the covenant, which declares that it is in full effect, that's the blood. That's, that's, that, that is the blood. And the fact that eternal blood, the eternal blood of God has been sprinkled in the heavens is the authority that releases us from sin and ushers us into all the blessings of the new covenant. Ah, Jesus, I got some, get ready. Uh, Jesus made reference uh, to this at, at the first covenant meal, which, you know, we'll deal with at a later time. But notice what it says in Matthew 26, Matthew 26, verse 28. For this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. Wow. Now, the Amplified Bible uh, there captures the meaning of the phrase, uh, my blood of the new covenant. And with the, extent, with, with the extended translation, which is what the Amplified does, it says, for this is my blood of the new covenant, which ratifies the agreements. Wow. The same events uh, recorded in Luke, and again, I'm going to quote it from the Amplified because it gives us uh, the meaning in its extent, extended translation. It says in Luke 22, 20, and in like manner he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the New Testament or covenant ratified in my blood, which is shed, poured out for you. Wow. The word ratified literally means to make something fixed, to give formal approval to, and, and as a result, validate, or, or it makes legal valid the official sanction. The blood that Jesus shed 
is that which makes the new covenant legally valid with the official sanction of the triune God, a, a, a reality that's recognized in heaven, earth, and hell. He, he carried his own blood into the true holy of holies, a lamb as it had just been slain. You're talking about the center of existence, uh, of which the holy of holies in, 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 in the temple was an earthly symbol. The blood of God in heaven declared that sin had been put away, never to be remembered again. That the reconciliation of humankind to God had been achieved and the new covenant had been ushered in. Then it says he sent down, declaring that it was finally and forever done. There would never be need of another offering. The one offering of him was the last sacrifice humankind would ever need. The covenant as made and God and humankind would be able to come together, set down together in joyful union. Let me finish out with just a couple scriptures. I love, I love the epistle to the Hebrews and how it spells it out as far as all sacrifices in Jesus. Hebrews chapter 9, Andy. Hebrews chapter 9 and beginning with verse 24. For Christ has not entered the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Not that he should offer himself often as the high priest enters the most holy place every year with blood of another. He then would have had to suffer often since the foundation of the world, but now once at the end of the ages, he has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Look at chapter 10. Verse 12, it's, it says, take, take you, you there? Ah, but this, but this man, verse 12, yeah, but this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. From that time, waiting till his enemies are made his footstool. For by one offering, he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. But the Holy Spirit also witnesses to us. For after he had said before, this is the covenant that I will make with them. After those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws into their hearts and in their minds I will write them. And then he adds, their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Now where there is remission of these, there is no longer an offering for sin. Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he consecrated for us through the veil, that is his flesh. From top to bottom it was ripped. It showed nothing was back there anymore, but it, what it represented was that we have access into the throne of God. How? By the blood of Jesus. Life blood. For life is in the blood. Whose blood? 
Jesus' blood? Yeah. But you see, so many believers devalue what that blood really is. Yes, it's Jesus' blood, but it is God's. That overwhelms me that he poured out himself for me. Scumbag, low, low to earth, worthless, nothing to offer. Don't get things right half the time. Mess up all the time. But he loved me. Because he created me. And he poured out his blood for me. It's the blood of God that has made this covenant. That our sins thank you for your word. Thank you for speaking into our hearts and our lives tonight. Thank you for making real what you have made real to us. I pray that you will bless them, encourage them, strengthen them. Continue to let them know your presence and your touch. And Lord, remind them they have access and entering in because of your life and death. Encourage them, strengthen Bless them in their coming ins and their going outs. Let them walk boldly as they have never walked before. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. Would you stand with me? Would you look at the person next to you and say, wow, that was long. <laughs> May God richly bless you. Encourage one another. Love one another. These altars are open if you want to find a place of prayer. We encourage you to do so. Love each other. Love God. Be blessed. Amen.